Welcome. So good to have you with us this morning, and it's great that you've signed in. Please would you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through to 24. This is the same passage that we looked at last week, so you'll uh, recognize some of the things that I'm reading. But we're going to be dealing with the end of the the passage, um, but we'll read the whole thing so that uh, for the sake of completeness. So Ephesians chapter one verses fifteen through to twenty three. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Isn't that mind-blowing? He gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the end of today's passage. Earlier this week on Wednesday, we had a scheduled prayer meeting at Harvest Church for the pastors and the elders. And with hindsight, it was quite a tough day for most of the elders because At least three of them are directly involved with wholesale. And it was on Wednesday that in Zimbabwe, we had to change our system of pricing so that we were able to quote in both US dollars and in local currency as well. And it was just quite a a handstand to do that. And chatting to, to the elders afterwards and to other people who have been involved in this whole process, a lot of people just feel as though life is meaningless at the moment. They feel as though they're circus animals um, trying to figure out how to jump through the next hoops that the government has put up for us. Life just really does feel meaningless. It feels like we're attached to a chain and that chain is just being jerked around by the chaos and the disorder in the country. The reality is, however, that there is knowledge that we can obtain that brings meaning to life. There is meaning in life and there is knowledge that brings meaning to life. What is that knowledge? Well, that's the question that we're going to answer today. We're going to have a look at what knowledge brings meaning and purpose to life. So just to recap, two weeks ago, we reflected on the implications of living in an age of information. And we said that it was vitally important to ask ourselves the question, how do we obtain knowledge that is worthwhile and meaningful? Knowledge that is going to bring purpose to our lives. And so we had a look at that, answering that question using three different headings. First of all, the catalyst of how to attain 
that knowledge. And we said that the catalyst was prayer. We need to start with prayer and we need to continue with prayer. Popular society tells us that, that the way we obtain knowledge is through study. And that is true. But we often forget that we need the catalyst of prayer as well. And then we had a look at the source of knowledge. We said that God is the source of all knowledge because he created everything that we see. And therefore, he knows how he set it up. He knows how it is supposed to work. And yet, how often do we turn to God as the ultimate source of knowledge? We often stop at other places first, other ports of call, before we turn to God and find out from him what we need to know. And then lastly, we had a look at the means of acquiring meaningful knowledge, and that's the Holy Spirit. It's brilliant to know that God has put his presence, his very presence within us, right at the center of our being, at the center of our feelings and our thoughts and our emotions and our will. And he is there, the Holy Spirit is there as the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. He shows us how to apply knowledge. He reveals to us knowledge that we wouldn't otherwise be able to know. And then he also enlightens the eyes of our heart so that we can understand what it is that we're learning. So we answered that question last week. How do we acquire knowledge that's meaningful? And now we're going to have a look this week at what we need to know in order to have a meaningful life. And I'm going to attend to this um, under four headings. There's four things that we need to know in order to have a meaningful life. First of all, we need to know God. Then we need to know the hope of his call. Then we need to know the glorious riches of his inheritance. And then lastly, we need to know his power. So God, hope, riches of his inheritance and his power. Let's turn first of all to God. Paul prays that God would give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of himself. We need to get to know God. And let's face it, folks, if there is a possibility that there is a God, then there is a possibility for there to be meaning in life. Because if we are naturalists and we will only believe in things that can be measured, things that, that, that can be observed, um, things that can be quantified by mathematical expressions according to natural laws, then there is no meaning in life. Because there is no personal force that is ordering life, that is directing it and impelling it in a particular direction. Everything is as a result of impersonal, natural processes. So if you take, for example, love. Love is not anything that brings meaning because it's simply a process of the mind to make sure that you pass on your genes to the next generation. It's a sort of a trick of the mind. And with naturalism, there is absolutely no basis for things like human rights. There's no basis for morality. In fact, there is no meaning. But if there is a God who stands apart from all of this, and he is a personal God, then there is a possibility that all of this could have meaning. And when we begin to discover that this God is not only omnipotent, all-powerful, but that he knows everything, then that increases the chances that there could be meaning to life because he, because he would have the means to 
impose his will on life. Then, what we need to think about next is if he is all-powerful and if he is all-knowing, there is a possibility that he could have created life as being meaningful. He could have decided to create the world as a place without meaning. But when we discover that he is a God of love and that he is a God who wants the best for his creation, then we start to realize that there can be meaning in life. And isn't that how God revealed himself to us? He revealed himself primarily through his son. He sent his son and through his son, we learn that not only is God loving, but that he is love. God is love. He is concerned about his creation. So we can know that there is a God and that he is love and that he wants the best for his creation. Isn't this the nature of God as he has revealed himself to us? And I'm just wondering whether you're starting to get to know this God personally. Are you starting to get to know him experientially? If you do, and if you are, you will discover that your life has meaning. But there's more to know that brings meaning to life. Let's move on to the second thing that we need to know, which Paul describes as the hope of his call. Paul prays that we would know God, but he also prays that we would know the hope of his call. That's a literal translation of what it says in the Greek, the hope of his call. If nothing else, Christians are to be people of faith, hope, and love. But what is hope? What is it? Let's, let's start off by faith. Faith is trusting God for the present. And if that's the case, hope is trusting God for the future. There's a sense in which hope is faith standing on its tiptoes looking into the future. So hope is faith in the future tense. That's what hope is. But there's more to it, to it because we will often use the expression hope um, and attach it to things that are uncertain. And so, for example, I might say, I hope that it's going to be warm tomorrow, knowing that there's a very good chance that it won't be warm tomorrow. But this is not the case with Christian hope, because Christian hope is based on the promises of a trustworthy God. If, for example, someone in the church congregation, maybe Pete Morrisby, for example, says to me, Ian, I'm going to pay you back next month. I promise to do that. I will only put my hope in that promise if I know that he is trustworthy and dependable. If he isn't, then there's no point in putting my hope in it. And so we have this hope which is certain because it's based on the promises of a dependable God. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he refers to a time when they weren't Christians. He says, remember that you were at that time, listen to this, strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, they weren't included in those covenants. They hadn't entered into an agreement with God, and God hadn't entered into an agreement with them. And notice that these covenants are covenants or agreements of promise. What is the result of being separated from those covenants of promise? He goes on to say, having no hope 
and without God in the world. No one to trust in the present and nobody to trust for the future. Before God adopted you as his child, his promises didn't apply to you. And so you were hopeless. It's no wonder that one would have no meaning in life if that were the case. Now, why does Paul put hope and calling together? Why does he say literally the hope of his calling, the hope of God's calling? Think about this. If God has called, then it means that he has a will. And if he has a will, there's a very strong possibility that his will is is expressed in a plan, it's guided by a purpose, and that he has the power to implement that plan. Is there evidence of this in chapter 1? Well, look at verse 1. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. In other words, God has a will. And then verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He wouldn't choose us if he didn't have a will. But there was more than a choice because he could have just had a random expression of his will. I'd like to do this or I'd like to do that, but not guided by any purpose or by any plan. But that wasn't the case. He did it guided by a purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in verse 5, it goes on to say, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Folks, God has a will. And it's not just some random will. It is a will guided by his purposes. And he has expressed it in a plan. And now it's all very well, for example, for someone like me to say, I have a will and this is my purpose and this is my plan. But if I don't actually have the means to implement it, it would be meaningless. But God does have the means because he is eternal and infinite and unchangeable. Every aspect of his character is infinite and unchangeable. So we have meaning in life. But what is this hope? Well, I think that we can begin to sum it up with one word. And yes, this is just scratching the surface, but it's the word resurrection. There is the possibility that at the end of our lives, we could be resurrected from the dead. Now, that resurrection would be a terrible thing if we were being resurrected to more of the same, more of the same of what happens in this life. But that isn't the case because we have this hope that we are God's inheritance. So let's move on to the next point. We are his inheritance. Just read this. Paul says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Listen to this. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Did you know that we, Harvest Church, the church universal, are God's inheritance? Now let me ask you a question. Do you think God wants to inherit for eternity humans that are subject to sin and decay? Absolutely not. That would be no inheritance at all. That would be a curse for God. 
there would be absolutely no meaning in that. No. When we are resurrected, we, we become God's precious, wonderful inheritance. People who are glorified. People who are like Christ. We will reflect Christ perfectly, whereas we don't do that now. And we will be that wonderful inheritance of his. God's inheritance in the saints will be, and this is literally a translation from the Greek, gloriously rich, far from being fallen human beings subject to sin and decay, we are going to be like Christ. Our folks, I just pray that we would know God. I pray that we would truly know the hope of his calling. I pray that we would truly know the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. But let's not leave it at that, because Paul doesn't. Let's move on to the last thing that we need to know, which is his power. Paul goes on to pray that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. Let's just reflect for a moment on that phrase, immeasurable greatness. We sometimes use infinity in language in a way that is inaccurate. For example, we might say that someone has unlimited wealth. But that's not true, because even the richest man on earth does not have limited wealth, wealth without bounds. Eventually, if he keeps spending it and misusing it, it will run out. We can measure it. We can count it. We sometimes talk about somebody having boundless energy. Oh, so-and-so, that guy's got boundless energy. But it's not true because there is a limit to his energy. There is a boundary. It can be measured. We can calculate it. Even in kilojoules, we know how much energy that person has. We might talk about a painter saying that he takes infinite pains over his work. But that isn't true either because he does the best that he can and eventually he says, well, this is not quite perfect, but I'm just going to leave it as it is. So when we talk about a God with immeasurable power, I hope you can start to gain some understanding of what that power is like. Now, infinite power implies infinite authority. We don't have authority unless we have the power to enforce that authority. And so, since God's power is without limit, then Christ has the right to authority over everything. Verse 20 tells us that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, which is a position of supreme power. And then verse 21 reinforces this fact by telling us that Christ is far above all rule and authority. Just get a load of this, guys. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Folks, this is Paul trying to express in words what cannot be expressed in words, the infinite, boundless, uncontainable power of God. Now, where is that power directed? And this is where it gets really exciting. The word toward is a preposition, and every preposition needs to have an object. So on the table or under the bed, God's power is directed towards 
us. We are the objects of his power. We are the objects towards, towards which his power is directed. And I just hope that you have personally experienced God's transforming power in you. I hope that you have become the objects of his transforming power. Because that is the most mind-blowing thing, to realize as you look back into the past that you have changed, that you have been transformed. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been changed from being an enemy of God to being a son or a daughter of God. But we must become, and this is important, we must become more than simply objects of God's power. We must become sons and daughters of God who wield, get this, who wield the Father's power on his behalf and in partnership with him. We need to join him in a sense in the family business and avail ourselves of the, the, the power that he makes available to us and use it. And isn't that what Paul means in verses 22 and 23? Let's just read it. He says, And he put all things under his feet, all things under Christ's feet. That's sort of like a summary of the authority that came in the verse before. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Everything, everything is under Christ's feet. He is the head over all things and he has been given to us. We are his body. He is the head over all things and he is the head over us. And we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now folks, this is not wielding power towards personal ends. This is not power without a divine purpose or without meaning. We, the body of Christ, must be submitted to Christ who is our head. And the purpose of the power is that we should become the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that Greek word which is translated fullness can refer either to the container or to the contents. And most of the commentators agree that what Paul is referring to is the contents. In other words, I uh, beg your pardon, the container. In other words, the church contains Christ who fills all in all. Folks, when we start to reflect and meditate on this truth, that we as Harvest Church are the container of Christ who fills all in all, it gives so much meaning to our lives. And when we begin to see, as we have already earlier in chapter 1, that God has a plan, He's working everything out in accordance with the purpose of His will to sort out the mess in creation and bring it all under the headship of Christ. Then we begin to realize that He wants us to be involved in that process. Why else would He have given us Christ, who is the head over all things? He has given, him, given us Christ gave him as head over all things to the church so that we can be the container of him who fills everything in every way. We need to go away. We need to meditate on these things and we need to have a look at our lives, our business life, our family life, our friendships through that lens. We contain Christ 
who fills everything in every way. And we are partners in the family business. We are participating in God's plan to sort everything else and bring everything, not only people, but the whole of this creation under the headship of Christ. And doesn't that give meaning to our lives? Let's just pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you so much that life is not meaningless. We thank you that in you we can find meaning. And we're just so blown away that you would choose to involve us in your plan to restore everything to the way it should be. Lord, you had such a wonderful concept in your mind and it was expressed in such a beautiful way when you created the world before the fall. And you want to bring things back to that. And we get to participate in that process. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for, for mothers and parents who are involved in homeschooling and just out of their comfort zone. I pray for men and women who are in businesses trying to figure out how to, how to keep going in this environment. Lord, I hope, I pray that you would show them the meaning behind everything that they do so that it would change everything. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much and hope to see you again in the near future.